Now, each of each of my sermons, the main ones, will be looking at Mark's gospel, and as we see, Jesus there as the King who came to die. Um, but as we begin, uh, we've got more of a topic looking at this passage from Hebrews chapter four as a starting point. I'm um, thinking about the cross as the revelation of God. The cross as the revelation of God. How do you know God? How do you know that there is a God? You know, how do you know God exists? How do you know what kind of God exists? Because even if you believe in God, which God? You know, the, the many gods of like the Greek or Roman pantheon? Or uh, is it, a, is it the, the God of Islam? Uh, which God? Um, what kind of God? What's God like? Um, and more still, how can I know God personally so that I can be in relationship with God uh, and be saved if, if God is a God you can have a relationship with? And is a rescuer. You know, what, what does it mean to, what, is there a God? What's God like? Can God be known? Does God like me? Can I please God? Can I be forgiven by God? How do I know these things? How can your classmates and your workmates and your cousins and your brothers and your sisters and your friends, how can the people of Launceston and Hobart and, and Burnie and so on, how can they know God and come into relationship with God? And if I do know God, and I say, yeah, he's my God. He's, he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is my saviour. Um, how do I know what God wants for my life? How do I know what's right and wrong? How do I know whether to choose uh, civil engineering or chemical engineering or uh, emergency um, medicine or um, general practice? How do I make those decisions? You know, how do I actually make the decisions in life? How do I know God's will for my life? Well, those questions are questions of the revelation of God. I don't mean the book of Revelation, but rather the word um, like in the book of Revelation means showing, reveal something that's concealed. If you don't know God, it's like God's concealed. How does God reveal himself, show himself, make himself known, make himself clear? The speaking of God, as we'll see, is a big part of that. How God speaks to us, like we see in this passage then. It's clear, isn't it, why we've chosen this one? Because it talks about, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers. He spoke many times, in various ways. And in these last days, he has spoken. How has God revealed himself? How has God made himself known? And, as we'll see, um, the cross is part of God's revelation, part of how God shows himself. The cross reveals God. Now, on the one hand, yes, when God talks, he tells us, I sent my son to save the world by dying on the cross. So it's part of the topic that God talks about. He tells us that that's his plan, yes. But as we'll see, more than that, the cross itself tells us things about God. When you see the cross and understand the cross, and as we do that more and more and more, wading from the paddling pool into the the, the, the elephant swimming pool, um, we'll see more about God as we learn more about Christ and his cross work. So two headings this morning. Um, firstly, uh, this is kind of a bit of background to the cross as the revelation. Let's think about the revelation of God. And this first heading is the Trinity, general revelation and special revelation. So the Trinity, comma, general revelation and special revelation. Now, you might say to me, well, that's three points, isn't it? Masquerading as one point, in which case you're getting to know a little bit the way my sermons work. <laughs> um, 
So, but that's, we're going to look at those. That, what, what, what is Christian idea of God's revelation? Well, it's those three big things. The Trinity, general revelation, and special revelation. Let's hit each of those quickly in this first heading. Uh, how does God reveal himself? Well, in the first place, God reveals himself to himself. In the Trinity, God is already expressive. You see that in chapter 1 of Hebrews, verse 3, describing God the Son. It says the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And he himself has a powerful word. God, in God's nature, is Father, Son and Spirit. He is um, a, uh, a one God in three persons and in God's self, before he made anyone else, before he made anything else, he was already showing forth himself in himself. That sounds strange, right? But let me explain it this way. The God of the Bible is not a silent and still God until one day he started moving and talking and made the world. It's not like God's essential nature is silence and stillness. And then one day he became different to what he is in himself and started moving and acting. Um, it's not that God is mute and motionless until he has, decides to do something and, and the creation makes him something different, a talking, acting God. No, no. God in himself is already, to use the Trinity language, some of you say maybe in your churches, that, that God is already the God eternally begetting the Father from whom the Spirit proceeds, the Father and the Son. Already there is this, God is, you could say, active and articulate in himself, dynamic and expressive in himself. In John's Gospel, um, Jesus talks about the Father and the Son, and, and although he's talking about his ministry as, uh, on earth, he, he, he shows us something of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, that the, the Son delights in the Father, the Father delights in the Son, the Father speaks, the Son listens, the Son brings glory to the Father, the Father brings glory to the Son. At the end of Jesus' life, in John chapter 17, Jesus' great prayer before he goes to the cross is, Father, glorify me with the glory I had before the world began. Before the world began, the Father and the Son are bringing glory to one another, the Son bringing glory to the Father, the Father delighting in the Son. Yeah? And the Spirit, then, is, the, uh, uh, is also the third person of that Trinity shining forth that glory. The Bible describes it in different ways. Perhaps in Genesis you can see there, God the Creator, the Speaker, speaking his word... By his breath. Breath and spirit is a similar word in many languages. There's the speaker, the word and the breath. See that in Genesis 1, John 1, Psalm 33. Or here in Hebrews, there is God the glorious, God the radiance of glory. And I suppose if you had to insert the spirit in here, you would say the vehicle by which that radiance shines forth. God the spirit. The glory, the radiance, and the, the means by which that radiance shines forth. All that means, complicated stuff, profound stuff, but all that means is that when you meet God as the God who sent his son to save us from our sins and pours out his spirit, you're not meeting God in a way that's different to the way he is in himself. You're meeting God the way God is before the world began. God in himself is active and articulate. In himself is Father, Son, Spirit. And so when I meet God as my Father who saved me in Christ by the Spirit, I'm meeting God, I'm sharing in the life of God. 
So when we think of the revelation of God, we need to understand God is in himself already shining forth, already revealing and, you could say, relating as the persons of the Trinity. But then, we normally talk about God revealing himself to us. And the first aspect of that is what is called general revelation. General revelation. And that's not really mentioned in this passage explicitly in, in Hebrews chapter 1. This, Hebrews 1 is talking mainly about special revelation, although it does mention that the Son sustains everything in verse 3 by his powerful word. And that's what we're talking about here, is how God does everything. <laughs> and so you see something of God in everything, because he's at work in everything. The Son, God by his Son and Spirit made the world and sustains it. He's still sustaining the world. Even the laws of nature are being upheld by him, by his powerful word. And so when you see everything, when you live day to day, you're seeing the work of God. A little bit like if I visited some of your homes. Now, some of you might be more embarrassed and some of you might be more proud about the state of your homes, but I'd definitely learn something about you, wouldn't I, by visiting your homes? The, uh, the degree of cleanliness, <laughs> what kind of sporting equipment or computer game consoles or posters or artwork or pets. You know, I'd see various things about you, wouldn't I? Your siblings and, um, and all those kinds of things. That would show me something about you, even if I'm not getting to know you. Well, we're seeing God's creation. We're seeing something about him. General revelation. This is a way God shows himself in everything to everyone. This is a way you can learn general things about God. Uh, this is a way you can't get to know God personally, just like if I visited your house and you weren't there. I wouldn't, couldn't say that I'm mates with you just because I've walked around in your house. I could say I'm kind of creepy, I suppose, if I walked around in your house without you being there. But I couldn't say I knew you personally, right? Um, you don't get to know someone personally that way. Same with God. Um, and certainly you don't know how to get saved just by admiring God's creation. You know about God, some things about him, but you don't get to know him personally or be saved. Psalm 19 speaks about general revelation. So let's maybe flip to that. And we will come back to that because it also speaks of special revelation, Psalm 19. Um, uh, but first it does speak about this general revelation when it famously says, the director of music, a psalm of David, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. So it is speaking in a way. Night after night they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from its pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. So I'm kind of hearing words from God when I look at the bigness of the world, the sun rising and setting, the stars... It's like I'm hearing a voice of God that everyone in the world hears there is a God. That's what the Apostle Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, which speaks about how everybody is responsible to God because everyone has a general knowledge of God, general revelation. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, Paul writes, because God has made it plain to them, how has God revealed himself? Verse 20, 
Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Everybody knows something of God from his creation, that he's powerful. That's what it says here, his divine nature, his eternal power, that there is a God, that he's powerful. But Paul's point here is we know enough to be therefore responsible for, for not worshipping him. Not enough to come into personal relationship with him and be saved. Yeah. So there's that sense in which as children of Adam and Eve, all human beings are made by God, responsible to God or to worship God. We know enough, everyone knows enough to be responsible as members of the human race for guilt before God, but not enough to come into relationship with God and be saved. That's general revelation. Ecclesiastes 3 speaks about the way in which there's a burden on the human race that, that, that we have a sense that things are beautiful in their time, that there's a purpose out there, but we can't join it all together. Know the beginning from the end. Romans chapter 2 speaks about a sense in which all people have a, a kind of law in their hearts, that they have a sense of some right, some wrong. They feel guilty sometimes and proud in the good sense, you know, kind of um, content with themselves at other times. We have a sense, uh, imperfectly, a sense of God. This is where both an intuitive religious awareness, there's got to be something out there, people say, but also arguments towards the existence of God, kind of philosophical discussions both fit into this. However, with this general revelation, we can't, as I've said, we can't know everything. It can easily be distorted. (laughs) And <laughs> we certainly can't know God personally know enough to be saved. For that we need special revelation. So Trinity, general revelation, special revelation. Back to Hebrews chapter 1. In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken in the past in many times, various ways through prophets. He has spoken in these last days by his son, the Lord Jesus. Speaking, not just showing by his actions. Uh, revealing and explaining, yeah, not just uh, leaving a, 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 an evidence. Psalm 19 acknowledges both these. I mentioned before how it speaks of both general and special revelation. Well, Psalm 19 really divides in half that way. In the first place, it talks about the creation uh, revealing the, the work of his hands, dec- the heavens declaring the glory of God. But then halfway through the psalm, he starts speaking about special revelation. Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure. They are altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. They may not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So that's more, isn't it? That's more than just, wow, God made everything. You know, in the microscope. Oh my goodness, God made all that too. Um, But it's actually, now I know what God wants. God's nature, God's will, God's promises. 
I can not only be a marvel and give thanks to a creator, but I can follow his will and beg him for forgiveness and call him my Lord, my rock, my redeemer. And as God speaks through the Bible, as we'll see this week, he acts, he saves, he judges, does miracles. But even when he acts in that way, in special revelation, it always comes along with interpretation. Often it's sandwiched with it. God says, like, think about, say, Moses, the story of the Exodus. Here's what I'm going to do. I will reveal my wonders. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And then he does his wonders. And then he says, now go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And then once he's done it all, he gathers them at the, the Mount Sinai and says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other God. That even when God is acting in special revelation, he accompanies that action with an interpretation. Hebrews has got a cool little bit um, in chapter 3 and 4 where there's a, like a little sermon on another psalm. And as he speaks about this other psalm, he shows um, how he understands the Bible, God's words revealed to us. Notice the different ways he quotes this psalm. In, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, quoting from Psalm 95, he says, The Holy Spirit says, quoting, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through Psalm 95. And then he picks it up again in chapter 4 and verse 3. And this time he says, as God says, presumably God the Father. So this is the Holy Spirit's words. This is God the Father's words. Again, quoting from that same psalm, I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And then a third time in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, God spoke through David the human author of that psalm, as was said before, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So that's, that's the Bible we have. God speaking through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God, by his spirit, through the prophets, making himself known. Sometimes he speaks in a very direct way. Write this down. Thus says the Lord. Sometimes, like in Psalms, he speaks through the psalmist, who might even be... God is speaking through a person praying to God. It's funny, isn't it? But it still is God speaking in that process. Uh, he speaks through a hovering hand, through a donkey to shame the, the prophet Balaam. A range of ways that God speaks. Through dreams, visions, through apocalyptic literature, um, and historical narrative and so on. Special revelation. So that's, that's the first heading, right? The Trinity... General revelation, special revelation. What does this mean? Let me just give a couple of thoughts before we move on to the cross as the revelation of God. Thought number one. Um, all the different ways that we can know things, philosophy, intuition, the created world, uh, conscience, uh, human religion, all of those things can give us some sense of things about God. Philosophy, intuition, creation, conscience, religion. But they are very limited and easily distorted or we can easily get things wrong. A strong human element, human element in them. You can't know God that way. You can't be saved that way. Enough, as I've said, looking at Romans, enough to be responsible for, before God, not enough to be forgiven by God. Second thought. From time to time I hear people say something like, maybe you've heard similar, 
Um, we mustn't put God in a box. They might say it to a group like this, you know, studying the Bible carefully and seriously. Oh, you guys got to be careful. Don't put God in a box, people say. Now, look, if they're talking about an especially kind of fixated human way to be too confident in our biblical interpretation and maybe to get carried away with our theological systems, sure, don't put God in a box. Be careful for how our theology can run away from God's revelation. Yes. However, <laughs> insofar as God is speaking to us through the prophets and in his son in the scriptures, this special revelation is not me putting God in a box if I'm faithful to it. It is, to put it kind of crassly, God putting himself in a box. But of course it it's not God putting himself in a box. It's God revealing himself in his freedom and glory and wonder. It's him showing himself as he is. And if I see that as boxed up, then I'm not understanding it. That this is what God is like. And as, as I get some sense of an understanding of scripture and, and clarify that in our theology, I'm not shrinking God, but I'm naming the bigness of God. Yeah? So be careful of a kind of maybe an overly spiritual thing that refuses to listen even to God when God tells us about himself in a desire to be spiritual. That's, that would be an odd thing, wouldn't it? It'd be a little bit like, I don't know, you fall in love and then Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright starts to tell you things about him or herself and you go, oh, but you were far too wonderful. You were a mystery to me. And she goes, no, no, I literally like blueberry pancakes. Oh, but your likes and your loves are beyond bounds. No, just blueberry pancakes, thanks. <laughs> oh, but who could name your one? At a certain point, you're just being rude, aren't you? <laughs> and so as God explains himself to us, we're getting to know what he's like. Yeah? And not putting him in a box, <laughs> but getting to know him, his nature. A uh, third thought. We need to learn, if this is true, to treat Scripture as a supreme authority. That's how the Presbyterian or the Anglican or the Baptist confessions and creeds talk about Scripture, as a supreme authority in matters of faith, in matters of um, in, uh, godliness, pleasing him, worshipping him, and so on. Now, there are other ways we know stuff. There's the Bible, but we also draw on our experiences, draw on our reason. Those of you who study philosophy, you could say that's the, you've, got the, um, you've got the rationalism and the empiricism. <laughs> there's the experience in the world. There's our reason and logic. There's also traditions that we draw on, previous knowledge of various kinds. Yeah? Reason, tradition, experience, they all have their place in human thinking and knowing. You can't get away from them. You know, even the person who says, I just read the Bible, that's it. You know, I just, everything comes straight from the Bible. You're just not realising the ways in which the way you've grown up, your traditions, influence your interpretation. And in order to read the Bible, you need your reason, don't you? And your knowledge of language. So, you know, they all have their place. They're really all variations of the same thing. Tradition is the history of human reason and experience, isn't it? And reason draws on experience. God works through those things. Yeah? He appears to our mind and appeals to our mind and reason. He's the God of truth. We experience God. We know him. We're moved by him. His spirit is at work in us, moving us to trust him. Yeah? Even it can work in miraculous ways and we experience God miraculously. 
and tradition like creeds and stuff like that, you know, or even Bible translations. This English translation, in a sense, is a tradition, isn't it? It's a, the English passing down of the original text, you know. So, so God uses those things, Bible, reason, tradition, experience. They're all good. They all go together. But I didn't say the Bible is the only authority, but I did say it's the supreme authority if it's where God speaks his special revelation. Very easily we can let our traditions, what's familiar, what people in our culture, background, church um, uh, tradition believes, to be the most important thing. Very easy to become loyal to our culture, our ethnicity, our denominational brand. And that actually that rules over the Bible. So that even if the Bible, we come to a point where the Bible confronts what we've always thought, we, we just don't hear it. We don't want to hear it. Explain it away. Yeah, that can happen. A really noticeable example of that happened during the Protestant Reformation as traditions built up and drifted from Scripture. Yeah? Our experiences, similarly, you can have an amazing experience that you believe to be of God. And if you're not careful, you can begin to allow that to become the kind of almost the central interpretative grid through which you then read the Bible. And maybe based on the, the teacher or the counsellor or the evangelist, who led you to that experience, their tradition and that experience means you, you, stopped, you stopped listening to what God says and instead build everything around that powerful experience. Tradition can be like that. Experience can be like that. Reason, of course, can be like that. Our theories, our philosophical theories of God can quickly become bigger than what God says. Emphasising things God doesn't really emphasise. Uh, focusing on things that God doesn't really focus on. Saying things God doesn't say at all. Creating rules where God gives freedom and so on. We too quickly can focus on and be drived and shaped by one of these other things or even allow them to contradict scripture. If my emotional experience and my reason leads me to find, say, the doctrine of the judgment of God difficult to believe, if reason and experience are the supreme authority, I'll just say, well, the God I'd like to believe in would never punish somebody just for not believing in him. And so I allow my reason and my experience to uh, overturn scripture, you see? So there's some, there's some challenges for you. Hey, if God has spoken, God in himself has spoken to us, not just in his creation, but in his word, listen to his word, take him at his word, treasure his word, sweeter than honey. Uh, more precious than any jewel. Trinity, general revelation, special revelation. And the second and final point, the cross as the revelation of God. The cross of Christ as the revelation of God. Hebrews 1, again. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The cross and the revelation of God. Well, the cross is part of the larger story of God's salvation history. 
in the past. 1 verse 1. He spoke to our forefathers. The Son who's created and sustained the universe. All that's, that's what we're going to do in our theological foundation seminars. See the ways in which God spoke in the past through the prophets at many times and in various ways. See that larger story the cross is a part of. Christ comes in the context of that. As we preach through Mark's gospel, we'll see quotations from the Old Testament as Mark and Jesus uh, explains his purposes by drawing on what God spoke through the prophets to our forefathers in the past. In the context of God's creation of the world, in the context of God's promises, in the history of God's saving work, what we call salvation history or redemption history. Here's an a awesome hymn that summarises this fact uh, really, really well. God has spoken. Um, if you know, it goes to the Beethoven's Ninth. Don't, don't sing along. You can keep the earworm in your head if you like. <laughs> God has spoken by his prophets, spoken the unchanging word, each from age to age proclaiming God the one, the righteous Lord. Mid the world's despair and turmoil, one firm anchor holding fast. God eternal reigns forever, God the first and God the last. God has spoken by Christ Jesus Christ, the everlasting Son, brightness of the Father's glory with the Father ever one. Spoken by the word incarnate, God of God, ere time was born. Light of light to earth descending, Christ as God in human form. God is speaking by the Spirit, speaking to our hearts. Again, in the age-long word declaring God's own message now as then. Through the rise and fall of nations, one sure faith is standing fast. God abides his word unchanging. God the first and God the last. Clearly, that hymn writer was drawing on Hebrews 1, amongst other things. Yeah? So that's, that's what we've gotten to so far. God has spoken. God is speaking in climax in Christ and still speaks that message. Read your Bibles. <laughs> but more than that, more than the cross of Christ being part of God's revelation, it is the climactic and central word. The climactic and central word. That's the point of this little intro to Hebrews, isn't it, surely? In the past, God spoke many times, various ways, but in these last days, God has spoken by his Son. And then we get told just how glorious that Son is and how actually he's, his word, was a word is a word that holds the whole universe together. If it weren't for his word, all our atoms would fly off. The last days compared to the past, the final days, the climactic days. The sun, the radiance of God's glory compared to the prophets, many and various. And this work that the sun does when God speaks by his son is a work which is final. Notice the, the way it's described there. After, this is halfway through verse 3, after he had provided, done, purification for sins. He sat down. You sit down when you're finished. I'll sit down after I'm done. I'm, I'm not finished yet. <laughs> um, uh, he said, but Jesus has finished his work. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Superior to any angel, mighty though they may be. It's a great introduction to the rest of Hebrews. The next seven chapters talk about how great the Son is, greater than the angels, greater than Moses, uh, giving a rest 
greater than the Moses, uh, the, uh, the rest that Joshua and David ever gave. A great priest, an eternal priest, better than any other priest of the Levitical priesthood throughout the Old Testament. Uh, in the line of Melchizedek, but greater than the ancient Melchizedek of the book of Genesis. Eternal, perfect, sinless, able to perfectly represent us and sympathise with us, able to perfectly atone for us because he represents us sinlessly as God become our high priest for our sakes. First seven chapters of Hebrews ram home this point of how great the Son is. And verses 8 to 10 then really drill home how great his salvation is. That the purification is once for all. He has provided it. Uh, that it's so complete that he sits down. Come to Hebrews 10 and you get a great summary of, um, uh, of this point. Hebrews 10, verse 11. It's really picking up very similar phrases to that, those verses that we're focusing on. Hebrews 10, verse 11. Day after day, every... This is Jewish Old Testament priest. Hebrews 10, 11. Day after day, every Old Testament priest stands and performs... Stands, notice. Stands and performs his religious duties. Day after day, again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Standing, doing, sleeping, waking up, coming back, standing, doing again. Day after day, again and again. But, verse 12, when this priest Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits. Nothing else to do but wait until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And his salvation comes to its climax. The outworking of what he has already achieved comes to fulfilment because verse 14 by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy a great supreme completed work of salvation so jesus uh, cross is part of the revelation of god it's the climactic and central part of the revelation of god in the cross we see god we see about God's character, about God's purposes. The radiance of God's glory in the Son, who in the last days God has spoken, we see him as the one, not just the creator, but the purifier, the one who sits down, who now rules and will return to judge. I mentioned before John's Gospel how uh, Jesus speaks there, about to die on the cross, and he prays, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your son with the glory he had before the world began. How's the glory going to come? Through his dying on the cross. He's lifted up on that cross. He's lifted up and glorified, crowned, uh, shining forth. Showing God to us. In the cross, Romans 3 tells us, we see the justice and the mercy of God. That he punishes sin for us in his son and forgives sin for any who trust in his son he is both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in jesus we see the justice and mercy of god in the cross that god is both just and merciful we see in colossians chapter 2 the victory and the power over god over sin over death over the devil and all his evil angels he triumphs over them he's victorious in the cross, we see the triune character of God. We've already talked about that, haven't we? That God the Father was in his Son, reconciling the world to himself. 
as the Son offered himself up by the eternal Spirit to save us, to provide that purification for sins. We see the beauty of God, how glorious and wonderful it is that this, uh, our, our songs are always grasping for it, aren't they? That perfect but painful, that sense of uh, this story is an amazing story. Something that uh, the, the Catholic uh, fantasy writer J.R. Tolkien marvelled at. He called it a catastrophe. You, like in um, EU, euthanasia, good death, you catastrophe, a good catastrophe. He said it was a story that, that had a, a disaster that made all things new. It was like a, a mega fairy tale that brought about something entirely wonderful. We see the purposes of God. In um, Ephesians chapter 1, God is praised and glorified again for the cross. What we see of himself in the cross... All through Ephesians we're told about how the mysteries of God are shown in the cross, that angels would love to see what we uh, now discover in the cross. Um, and in speaking about our adoption, God's grace, our redemption, Ephesians 1 verse 7, by his blood, according to the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, with all wisdom and understanding. See, God's revealing himself to us, and he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, the revelation of God on the cross, which he has purposed in Christ to be put into effect when times will have reached their fulfilment. Jesus is now waiting for this to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, Christ. That God's purposes centre on which a climax in Jesus saving us from our sins, reconciling the universe, bringing God's justice, God's mercy, God's truth, a, a good end to the story. So what does this mean? Let me pause again with some, some final thoughts as we, um, as we come towards a close and sort of try and rub this in. If it's true that the cross isn't just how you get saved... Um, but is actually how you get to know God. Well, first again, I urge you, since we learn of the crosses and its riches through God's word, read your Bible. You've done well coming here. You're going to read your Bible a lot this week, we promise you. And, and hopefully show you some ways to read the Bible to discover new things in it. Read the Bible. Have you read the whole Bible before? Maybe this year could be the year. You could read the whole Bible. That'd be pretty great, wouldn't it, if you've never done it? Have you done it once? Maybe go for a reread. I'm sure you've got favourite books and, and TV shows you re-binge. Maybe re-binge the Bible. Yeah? Read the Bible. Read the whole thing. Yeah? Think about it as you read. Look in it to get to know God better. Yeah? Don't let it just wash over you waiting for a little inspirational quote as if the Bible is just a bunch of kind of hashtags or something, just waiting to just spark your, your you know, Holy Spirit zing. Um, but instead, seek to pay attention as God talks to you. What are you telling me here, Lord? Grow to understand it better. That may also, not, I mean, conferences like this are excellent, um, but also seeking out other ways to get to know God's word better. And that can involve things like listening to podcasts, that help you understand the Bible better. Deep theological podcasts, reading books that will stretch you. There's even an excellent old book called The Cross of Christ by John Stott, a 20th century English theologian. Excellent book. It even has a chapter on this theme, The Cross of the Revelation of God. Read 
uh, about the scriptures because what that will do is then help you see fresh things in it. But others who have dwelled on these things will help them see those deeper things again. Treasure songs that help you uh, dwell on the cross of Christ. Now, look, we love Christian songs for a bunch of reasons. They're catchy, uh, they're inspiring and stirring. Uh, but there are some songs that don't talk a great deal about the cross of Christ, aren't they? They talk in general about maybe how much I love God and, and I will delight in him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Um, um, and it's, that's great. I'm, I'm pleased that you'll, you know... I mean, you end up with weird sentences too, like my heart longs eternally for what is to come, which is a nonsense sentence because if it's going to come one day, your heart will stop longing then, won't it? So my heart longs temporarily for what is to come. <laughs> it's more correct. Um, but a lot of songs can talk about our feelings towards God, which is right and good, or can talk in general terms, in general revelation terms about his greatness. Yeah? Or in, um, in the past, God spoke through the prophets' ways about him. So uh, here's 10,000 reasons, of which we only have about four in the song, um, and then general <laughs> Old Testament ones. You know, a Jew could largely sing the song, really. You're rich in mercy, you're slow to anger. Your heart is, you know, I praise you, Lord, and my soul, and I'm back to me. I'll praise you, Lord, I praise you, Lord. Um, but find those songs uh, which will actually help you um, dwell, and a lot of the old hymns do this, help you dwell on the cross of Christ, what his work for us, his salvation for us, and get some of those in the playlist is what I'm encouraging you to do. Not to discount those others, but just to maybe make you alert to the fact that if we're not careful, our Christian song diet can be about anything and everything other than what God has done for us in the cross. Read your Bible and all those things that help us go deep. Secondly, as you read your Bible, learn to do what we'll show you this week, which is biblical theology. That is, timeline theology. Read your Bible as a story that reaches its climax in Jesus. What's Genesis about? Partly, it's about getting you ready for Jesus. What's the work of Moses about? Partly, it's an enormous um, model of the cross work of Jesus. You're going to see that in our seminars. Hebrews goes on and on about that. Yeah? What are the Psalms about? Well, in one sense, they're song books of the Messiah who suffers and then is glorified. Sound familiar? And so on. So read your Bible as a, as a story. Do biblical theology. Timeline theology. It's a pretty exciting way to read your Old Testament. Makes it a whole lot more accessible too. Helps you know why you're reading it. Thirdly, Remember that Christ is a final, climactic, central word. I've heard the story. <laughs> this is a preacher illustration. I've heard the story that Charles Spurgeon, the famous 19th century Baptist preacher, told a story. <laughs> so let's just treat it as a story, and it's a good one. He tells, holds a story, so I'm told of an angel coming into the aisle of the church as he's preaching, so the story goes. Um, and the angel says, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I'm here to tell you by the authority of God himself that you are saved. Your name is written in heaven. You're saved and I'm here to bring that message to you today. And so the story goes. Spurgeon's response is, get behind me, Satan. Before this moment, I trusted my security in all eternity to the blood of Christ. And his work alone, that was my confidence and my plea. And now you want to swap this, O oh devil, for the words of an angel. Be gone. 
That's a grim story, right? <laughs> now, I mean, God has spoken through prophets and he does speak through angels. So, you know, it's, it's, but it's making us a good point, isn't it? What's the most exciting thing? That's the point, right? I think a lot of us, if we were in a room and we're all sharing of stories of how we spoke, how God had spoken to us, and if 10 of us said, oh, to be honest, mainly just through the Bible and church and I guess my parents' quiet time, you know, growing up, family devotions, that's mainly how God's spoken to me, I guess. Maybe had a dream once that could have been, could have been, probably wasn't though, could have been though. And then one person says, oh man, God speaks to me through an angel. That's how I'm doing what I'm doing at uni now. Surely that person wins spiritual points, right? Surely that person has the most awesome story. Now, it's the most weird story. It may be true, but it's not the most wonderful. It's an also story. The most wonderful is the thing we have in common. The most wonderful is that in the past, God spoke in many ways, including through angels, including through donkeys, including through dreams. But in these last days, da -da -da -da, he has spoken to us by his son, who's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, who has sat down at the right hand of the Father because his work of salvation is finished. That's the awesome thing. If God gives some of you dreams or visions or speaks to you through an angel, well and good, but remember what is most glorious. That's the point, yeah? The, uh, in Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul warns that we don't get led astray and get puffed up by uh, rituals and ceremonies and visions, including angelic visions. And he says those things can puff up the unspiritual mind. Actually, when Paul speaks about his own visions, he's all weird about it. He gets all kind of um, evasive. This is in, in 2 Corinthians 12. Um, as he starts to talk about his own extraordinary spiritual visions, he, he's kind of like, ah, oh, a bit like a person asking an awkward question about sex in youth group. You know, if my friend didn't know about what God thought about <laughs> this kind of really awkward indirect thing, he says, oh, I know of a man who... Um, was taken up to heaven and experienced many things, but I won't talk about that. Instead, I'll talk about Christ and my sufferings. It's really interesting. He, he kind of feels it's helpful for him to explain how God has dealt with him, but he at the same time is constantly going, but that's not the big deal. I'd rather not talk about that. I'd rather talk about Christ and boast of my weakness. Yeah? So I get that sense right, yeah? And it's, look, it's the same with um, seeking guidance. Whom should I marry? Should I marry? What should I do in my career? Um, uh, these kinds of things. We can often, because they're, they're burning decisions for us, we can often spend a lot of time longing for God to give clear word to us or a leading to us. Now, on one level, yeah, God can in various ways do that. Through a word in time, through an intuition during a sermon, perhaps even through a dream or something else, right? Um, however, it's really important to remember that actually the reason why many of us don't get those clear messages is actually it's not the most important thing for your life on earth. Exactly what degree you do, exactly what ministry you do, even exactly who you marry or whether you marry is not the most important decision you make. The most important decision you make is will you live for Christ? Will you live the godly life, the kind life, the loving life, the generous life? With our student leaders the other day, we were chatting about sexuality and gender and all this kind of stuff, and, and I shared a, um, a theologian, Stanley Howellwass, who was famous for saying, uh, you always marry the wrong person, is his quote. 
Um, by which he meant, um, like, everybody's sinful. It'll be a challenge no matter who you marry. Um, he also says the opposite. He says you always marry the right person, by which he means. Once you're married, well, you've got to figure out how to make it work. Um, there's a sense in which the, there will be challenges in your life, seasons of fruitfulness and struggle, no matter what course you take. There'll be struggles in your life, no matter what course you take. The most important thing often, which is why God may not, just as even throughout the Old Testament, not everyone was getting prophecies and angels visiting them. There were lots of people just kind of hanging out in Proverbs, um, um, going to synagogue and um, so on. Um, that, that the key thing might just be be wise, be godly, trust God, serve him, do your best, make a sensible decision. And those are the biggest things. <laughs> and what is some of these other things we feel are big because we're in a time and wealth in history where we have lots of options. We feel that strongly. Those things may not be as big. I hope that's a bit liberating, a little bit. <laughs> that, yeah, God may help you. Yeah, seek good advice. But also, be godly and be faithful. And those decisions that seem so big may not be the big ones as you look back on your life. More, because the cross is this central word of God, keep an eye out for the way the New Testament again and again goes back to the cross to talk about all sorts of topics. How do we think about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the church? How do we encourage these two uh, uh, women active in ministry in the Philippian church to get on together better? How do we help uh, this Christian deal with a, a slave who was run away and converted to Christ? How do we think about forgiveness, generosity, marriage relationships, civil court cases, um, godliness in the church, sexual morality in the church, liberty of conscience, evangelistic and missionary practice, suffering and injustice? Well, Galatians 2 and Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 9 to 11 and 1 Peter, they all go back to the cross of Christ. And so let's go back to that again. Let's delve deeper and see how the, what we learn about God and ourselves and the world from the cross of Christ gives us guidance for all of these things. Live a cross-shaped life, you could say. A cross-shaped life. I think sometimes, um, it depends in a room like this, some of us will be influenced in different ways. Some of us may have grown up hearing a lot and maybe at church hear a lot about uh, biblical worldview or kingdom values or the law of God in society or, um, or just family values or uh, various things um, that can come to uh, be the main grid by which Christians think about their lives and their role in the world. All of those things are actually really valuable and important and they're increasingly important in, in a the complex world we live in. The danger, however, is a bit like I was saying with the songs. Where's Jesus and his cross in all of it? The danger can be even that with some of the talk of whether it's values or theonomy or biblical worldview, that we actually even maybe lose the suffering before glory, the serving... Um, and, and being despised. We lose the, that cross-shaped uh, and it becomes about winning, persuading, um, influencing and we, we lose that 
Sometimes it might be about losing and suffering. Yeah? So, so that's just, again, one of those points where the, these other things are important values and worldview, very important. But doing that while preserving a cross-shaped outlook is super important, again. Spiritualities, likewise, whether seeking miracles or rituals and liturgies, disciplines, fasting, oaths, whatever it is, the calendar, the Lord's Supper, whatever. Um, Again, the risk can be, where is the cross in it all? Could it be that I get more excited about fasting or miracles or tongues than I do about the cross of Christ? Certainly talking to older people who've watched the history of the Pentecostal movement, it's quite interesting to hear some of them reflect on how for for a season there... In some parts of it, it's gotten better again. But for a season there, the old, ye old time Pentecostal, who would still go on and on and on about the cross of Jesus, lost its way and went on and on and on about the spirit and about miracles and about wealth and about all this stuff all the time. So that Jesus was, if anything, just a kind of vehicle to get you to the spirit and to the wealth and the blessing and the... Even when I was at uni, there was a spirit that got you to church where you'd fall on the ground laughing and barking like a dog for a while there. I think we've lost our way at this point. <laughs> now, thankfully, it does seem that, that some never lost it and other Pentecostals have, have heard that critique and you know, gotten back to the cross again. But it's, it, it, we can drift, yeah? We can drift from the simple cross of Christ, Yeah? The glorious centre, the secret weapon, the great revelation of God is what he's shown us and done for us in the cross of Jesus. Treasure that and talk about that. That's a great message to share to the world. It's a great distinctive we have. Let's pray. Loving Father, what a marvel it is to know you have you make yourself known to us what a a precious privilege it is to live in these last days since Christ's coming where we see you your nature your character your purposes super clearly as we see your work for us in your son we praise you and worship you and delight in you for that We cling to that. And we ask that in all these ways we've been reflecting on, we can uh, seek to know you better, read your word more attentively, understand your cross more deeply, treasure it in our lives, uh, our spirituality, in our living, and so on. And we really beg of you that more of our friends and family and classmates and workmates might be stirred to show interest, to find out about the cross of Christ, that they may turn from darkness to light, turn from seeing dimly through general revelation to seeing clearly and personally through special revelation. We bless you and praise you for all your good gifts to us. In Jesus' name, amen.